Hello, everyone. Welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum at the intersection of finance, technology, and geopolitics. SALT Talks are a series of digital interviews we've been doing during the work-from-home period in lieu of our global conference series. Uh, we really try to replicate that experience that people get at our Las Vegas event and at our international events. And what we really try to do is provide our, our audience a window in the, into the minds of subject matter experts as well as provide a platform for big world-changing ideas. And today we're very excited to bring you something a little bit different than a lot of the talks we've been doing uh, on SALT Talks so far over the last few months. And it's bringing you author Daniel Silva. Uh, Daniel is the award-winning number one New York Times best-selling author of a long list of books, The Unlikely Spy, The Mark of the Assassin, The Marching Season, The Kill Artist, The English Assassin, The Confessor, A Death in Vienna, Prince of Fire, the Messenger, The Secret Servant, Moscow Rules, The Defector, The Rembrandt Affair, Portrait of a Spy, The Fallen Angel, The English Girl, The Heist, The English Spy, The Black Widow, House of Spies, The Other Woman, and The New Girl. And I think he will soon be on that list for his latest book, which is The Order. He's best known for his long-running thriller series starring spy and art restorer Gabrielle Allen. Uh, Silva's books are critically acclaimed bestsellers around the world, and have been translated into more than 30 languages. Uh, Daniel resides in Florida with his wife, uh, television journalist Jamie Gangle, and their twins, Lily and Nicholas. If you have any questions for Daniel during today's talk, a reminder, enter them in the Q&A box uh, at the bottom of your video screen. And I'll have to say that we've been doing these salt talks for a few months. We've had you know, several billionaires across finance technology. We've had some people in the entertainment realm. But I've never seen our host today, Anthony Scaramucci, more excited for any SALT talk than the one that we have today. Uh, Anthony, as, as most of you know, is the founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital. He's going to conduct today's interview, but I think it'll be really fascinating. Anthony, I think, has read almost all of, of Daniel's books, including most of his, his latest book that came out uh, about a week ago. So I'll turn it over to Anthony Scaramucci for the interview. Hey, John, great. Uh, Daniel, great to have you on. It's a true honor for all of us. And uh, uh, you'd be blown away at the number of fans you have as they're populating the Zoom call, but also uh, friends of mine that were excited that you were going to be on today. Uh, but I want to take you back. Uh, tell us a little bit more about your personal background beyond what we would read at the back of a book. Where were you born? How did you get started? Why did you go into journalism? And how did you flip over to becoming the great spy novelist that you are? Uh, well, contrary to what it says about me on Wikipedia, I was not born in, in Detroit, Michigan. I was actually born in Kalamazoo, Michigan, if you can believe that. Um, and I lived there um, <clears throat> until I was about seven years old. Uh, my parents are both school teachers. Um, we headed west. Um, I, I spent uh, my rest of my childhood in Central California. Um, and I attended college, uh, undergraduate work at California State University, Fresno, uh, where I studied journalism with the great Roger Tatarian, uh, one of the great uh, wire service editors of all time, who was a great mentor of mine. Uh, I attended graduate school at San Francisco State University, <coughs> um, great conservative university in, in, San, in California. I'm being facetious, of course. Um, and I uh, studied uh, international relations um, uh, for my graduate work. And my, one of my um, 
great regrets is I didn't, actually didn't finish my degree because I got the job I wanted. I was hired as a, as a, as a journalist for United Press International in San Francisco. Um, within a year, I was working on the foreign desk in Washington. And a year after that, I was, I was work, living and working in the Middle East as a foreign correspondent at the age of 26 years old. Um, I met my wife in the Persian Gulf uh, in 1987. Um, we decided to marry. I came back here and worked at, at CNN for a few years as a television producer. Um, and when I was about 32, 33, um, I confessed to her that I had become a journalist so that I could become a novelist, which is what I always wanted to be. Um, and I told her that I needed to start working on my first novel. Um, when she started laughing, or stopped laughing, I should say, <laughs> um, I said, go ahead, um, you know, have fun. Um, and I went down, I wrote my first manuscript. It was The Unlikely Spy. Um, and uh, I left full-time journalism um, and, became, and became a novelist. <clears throat> um, uh, I guess in 19, but 98, I, I left, uh, uh, left journalism and so I've been you, writing ever since, full-time ever since. But you, you, you were, you know, cause you're a very creative human being. So you had these characters in your head, you had an idea. There was a storyboard in your head, uh, for how many years, Daniel? For, for the first novel? Yeah. I, I, you know, I carried it around with me for a while. Um, I was, I was loved World War II fiction, um, loved World War II history, um, and decided that was going to be my, my, my first book. Um, and the interesting thing about it is that I, I wrote it um, while working. I mean, I had an enormous job at the time. I was the executive producer of all of CNN's political talk shows. Uh, so that included, you know, Crossfire Every Night, Capital Gang, um, Inside Politics, Reliable Sources, Evans and Novak, all of those programs. Jamie used to call them the shout shows. When I look <laughs> at the landscape of, of television news today and all the opinion um, uh, that's, that's, that, that comes to the screen all night long, I mean, I, I sort of feel that he's partially responsible. Um, and so the, I would get up very early in the morning. I still do, by the way. I don't really sleep much past about four o'clock. And I would write for a few hours. And then I would stop and set it aside and, 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 and uh, resume my work day. Um, I sent the book in. I didn't have an agent. Um, and I sent it in, um, we call it an unsolicited manuscript in the business, um, inside the publishing houses. They, they call it the slush pile. And I actually got my first novel picked off the slush piles um, at a couple of houses. And it was read. Um, and as things or want to happen in New York publishing. One person reads it, someone else reads it, someone else reads it. Um, and within a very short period of time, I, I, I knew I had a, a, a book deal. Now, you, I, I, I always find great insight in your books, you know, historical insight, insight into the art world, the Vatican, obviously the Mossad. Uh, but tell us why you named the character Gabriel. Is it because he's the interpreter of Daniel? Is that why you named him that? Because you've um, left that in a few of your books, and I'm just wondering if you're telling the readers something about yourself in the in the book. Well, first of all, it's a it's a beautiful name, um, and I, I just love the name um, Gabriel. I love the translation of the name Gabriel, which is God is my strength. 
um, all of us with the IEL, um, that, that means that God is in our name. So I'm Daniel. Um, um, so my name translates as God is my judge. Um, it's not a great name to have. Apparently people who are given this name have a sense that God is looking over their shoulder all the time. Uh, and I definitely, I definitely feel that way. Um, so I, I love the name. I love the fact that it, it was the name of an important archangel. Um, he was the, the defender of Israel, the prince of fire, uh, the interpreter of Daniel's visions, um, and the messenger. That's his other great quality. Um, so I thought that was a perfect name for him. And then his last name, um, Alon, uh, Alon, uh, is just an oak tree in Israel. It's a very common name. Um, I, I thought it was simple, um, that it was sort of in its own way, a, a little bit anglicized to begin with. Um, and I just like that it had solid as an oak. Um, and then also that he's a restorer who works on wood and panels and frames. I just thought it, it, it suited his character. Um, so I did work hard on the name um, in, in you know, in service of a character who was supposed to be in one novel, by the way. He was not supposed to be a continuing character. He was supposed to appear in one novel and quite literally sail off into the sunset. And, and that obviously didn't happen. Um, but that's that's the genesis of his name. Well, thank God it didn't happen because these stories are uh, they're beautiful stories. They're very suspenseful. And it's uh, it's always an exciting summer read. Uh, tell us a little bit about the research that goes into this, because you are precise uh, you blew up one of my friend's restaurants, Cafe Milano. Okay, he still he loves showing me the spot where the bomb went off. You, you've got the restaurants down in Italy better than the Zagat's community. And so tell us a little bit about your field research and tell us a little bit about your research in the potential intelligence community, the extent that you're able to talk about that. How do you get the ethos of these players so well? Um. Well, in terms of you know site research and trying to soak up as much of a place as possible, I do try to do that. I try to spend as much time in in a place as possible that I'm writing about. Um, we've obviously spent a tremendous amount of time in Italy. Um, in the, and one summer, we spent virtually the entire summer there. I used the the, the house where we lived, um, this this farm that we lived on, in, in a couple of novels. Um, I've spent a lot of time at the Vatican. I have, you know, this book has a as a, a conclave scene in it. I've been in the Sistine Chapel alone. I've opened the door of the Nero, the little stove yes. where they burn the ballots. I've been yeah, in the crying yeah. room. Um, so I do a lot of site research as much as I can. Um, and if possible, I like to go before I write in that in that little bit of down period. Um, for example, when I wrote Moscow Rules. We spent a, a, a couple of weeks uh, traveling in Russia, and that that trip really influenced me. I could not have written that book without that time I spent there. Um, you know, sometimes I will go to a place in the middle of the process. Uh, for example, with House of Spies, I wanted to set uh, the end of the book in Morocco, um, and so I dragged everyone. To Morocco for their for their winter break and and settled there, traveling the, the the country and literally the way that the chase at the end works in that book. I was in each place writing it um, on the spot. Um, 
tremendous amount of book research. If you look at my um, uh, acknowledgments in, in the book in front of you, you'll see the research that went into that book. Um, and I mean, you know, oftentimes for a project like this, I mean, I am up till one, one in the morning with the book open, uh, doing my research. Um, I do it a lot, obviously do a lot of research on security issues. Um, I talk to as many people as I can um, uh, in the business. Uh, some of my best friends were spies and some of my best friends actually work for the Mossad. Um, it's not a relationship where I ask them, you know, <clears throat> how do you do this? Um, they wouldn't tell me anyway. Um, and frankly, I want the freedom to sort of use my imagination and, and make it up. What I do get from them is their, um, their view of the world, um, their in, incredible intelligence, um, their sense of humor, which I hope comes through in the book. Um, you know, one of the things I discovered after creating Gabriel is that there are a number of really talented artists and musicians who happen to work for the Mossad. I don't know if it's the gene pool or the type of person that they look for, um, but but uh, Gabriel Lon is not the only painter that, that works for the office, as I call it. And and you have you have great insight into the Catholic Church, by the way. And and in your novels, I'm always reflecting upon my Catholicism and the evolution of Catholicism. And I saw your interview on Morning Joe, and I I just wanted to ask you an elaborate question related sure. to the Catholic Church. You, you suggested on Morning Joe that they they are obviously under financial pressure. But there's something else going on. You, you, we see empty churches here in the United States. There's empty churches in Europe. Do you think that this is a temporary pause in this 2,000-year-old institution and there will be an eventual renewal? Or do you think that this is a uh, more ominous sign of what's going on for Catholicism? Um, I think it's difficult to overstate um, the depths of, of, of the crisis facing the Catholic Church right now. Um, I'm sure that you talk about it with your your Catholic friends. I certainly talk about it with my Catholic friends. That the sexual abuse scandal, um, you know, this systematic um, abuse and cover up for, for decades and decades and decades. It's just um, shaken the, the church to its core. Um, and there's just no getting around that. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm not sure it's an extinction level event, but it, it's it, it's gonna take a long time to get over that. The, the immediate effect of that is, um, I think we're up to 19 uh, dioceses and orders in the United States that have declared bankruptcy. I'm told, um, that the, that the Vatican is just really hanging by a thread and the Holy See, I should say, in terms of its finances, um, that they're, that they're going to face a real financial crisis in the very near future. And um, when I talk to my more doctrinaire Catholic friends and more to the traditional end of the spectrum, um, they talk very openly about a, a coming schism within Catholicism. Yeah. Um, I, I would hope not, but but um, um, in, in friends of mine who were, you know, not you know, necessarily opus day, but sort of that end of the of the spectrum, um, foresee a a small church that adheres to the um, traditional doctrines um, and, and sort of says goodbye to a portion of the church that wants to move on and 
and um, ordain women and, and make other changes. So yeah, well, we'll see, but it's, it's definitely it not out of the realm of possibility. It, it, it's fascinating. You always say it's the oldest organization. You know, it just seems to me like when you think about it as an organization and the survival over two millenniums, uh, this seems to be a very hard blow. And so we'll, we'll have to see what happens there, but it's a good segue into my next question. So a question inspired by your wife, actually, about the book, The Order. I'm going to hold it up here. Uh, great advertising. Great cover, by the way. Thank you. Uh, but Jamie wanted me to ask you this. I think it's a perfect question. The book deals with fascism. It deals with neo-fascism. It deals with neo-Nazism. It deals with anti-Semitism. And it deals with radical orthodoxies like an Opus Dei or the, the Order, the St. Helens Order, et cetera. And so why did you incorporate all that in this book at this hour in the current zeitgeist going on in the world? Um, I have watched for several years um, in Rome, um, you know, talking to people inside the church and, and um, in Italian politics, just that with certain fascination, the, the hatred that, that the populist far right um, has for Pope Francis. And, and that extends to this country as well. American conservatives despise the guy. Um, and then you couple that with the um, internal doctrinal war that's going on. Um, it it uh, seemed to me to be the sort of the perfect setting um, to explore the rise of, of the far right in an accessible, entertaining way, and in a very real way. Um, and um, I wanted to couple that uh, and pair that with the accompanying rise of anti-Semitism in Europe, um, which has reached levels really not seen since the, the middle of the last century. It's on the rise here as well, by the way. Um, and to explore um, in this novel, the roots of anti-Semitism. You know, I, I don't know about you, but when, when the Tree of Life synagogue shooting happened in Pittsburgh. <clears throat> I was deeply alarmed by that. I mean, it was not only the worst single act of violence ever directed against Jews in this country, but then the nature of the attack. And we had a, a guy who's a sort of a white nationalist, I don't want to say his name, um, sort of white nationalist, white supremacist, immigration uh, opponent. Um, and his act of violence that he chose to carry out was not against immigrants, um, brown-skinned immigrants, but against Jews. I was incredibly alarmed by that. Um, and I wanted to explore what, what is going on in this guy's mind? Why would he have targeted Jews when he's really angry about Hispanic immigration to this country? Um, and so just combining this, numerous elements. It's the way I assemble a book. Um, and the result of that is, is the order. Yeah, well, I, I don't want to give up any of that plot line, but I, I, I do have to ask this question because one of your characters, and I won't mention who, uh, says to one of the protagonists, obviously the antagonist talking to the protagonist says, well, the lifespan of Jews living in their second homeland, America, is about to expire. And I'm sure you remember writing that. And I was left reading that thinking to myself, uh, 
is there something ominous there? Is that a warning that you're putting in your book? Is there, and, 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 and again, just for context for people listening, haven't read the book, you do mention that uh, during the execution of Christ, certain things are discussed that are, that are put into the gospels about blood being on the children and the forebearers of, of, of Jewry or, or Judaism. And it's a very controversial uh, nine words to use your expression. <laughs> and so my question is, um, where, do you, where do you feel things are? Is there a cautionary tale here in your, in your great novel, your thriller? Well, let me answer that this way. Um, I, I'm a little concerned about where we're, where we're headed in the, this country in the next, in the short term. Um, I am deeply concerned that we're going to get a clean, um, conclusive election. Um, I worry what's, what's going to happen um, if and when Donald Trump loses, if it's, if it's a tight race, if he doesn't. Um, he'd say it again on Sunday um, that uh, he, he might not accept the results of the election. He actually said it again. Um, I am concerned about just the general level of racism that's just bantied around our country right now, that's flowing through the internet like like Niagara Falls. Um, and the, just the, the, the openness about it. Um, and you know, look, do I, am I suggesting that Jews in the United States are in imminent danger? Uh, no. Um, am I am I concerned long term here um, about the sort of the direction that's going that's take uh, of this country and what's happening in particular in Western Europe and in Germany? Yes, I am concerned. Um, I am very concerned. When I when I visited the Yad Vashem mm -hmm. Holocaust Memorial, the museum, and I went through the uh, display, mm -hmm. something that was left me that I was, was burnt into me. It was. Uh, that Jews had lived peacefully in Germany for 500 years. At least. At, at least. And this is the reason why 40% of them didn't really understand the danger because they felt that they were Germans and they were, their bloodlines were Germans. And so therefore this sort of uh, catastrophe, this fascist catastrophe couldn't happen to them. And so they stayed, they stayed put while 60% fled. Um, I guess, I guess the, the reason I'm bringing this up though, is it ties back into your novels. You're fascinated with the Middle East and you're fascinated with Europe. And so these seem to be their plot lines. It's the Middle East and Europe. And uh, why? Uh, give us a little bit of color on that. Is it because of this history uh, between the two regions? Uh, without question. Um, I mean, my if you could see my wall back there, you'd see... Yeah. You know, one very, section that I have. I'm very envious of your wall. By the way, John Dorsey is going to be asking some questions, Daniel. That's a fake wall behind him. I just want to assure everybody. So if he, get, if he gets a room rating, it'll be a fake news room rating. But you, you've got a genuine thing going on there. You would see a, an entire panel of that bookshelf that it contains every seminal work on the history of the Holocaust, um, the Second World War, um, the history of Judaism, that corner over there is is the history of, of Roman Catholicism. It's a it's a it's a uh, subject that endlessly fascinates me. The Jerusalem to Rome axis, Western civilization, how we came to be, 
Um, and Gabriel stands astride that. I mean, um, and, and, you know, from the beginning of, the, of his career, um, Europe was his area of, I guess he's, he's gone to the Middle East a little bit, but mainly because he, he was a descendant of, of German-speaking Jews who came to Israel after the Holocaust, at least his mother. Um, and because German was the first language he heard, it's, it's still the language that he dreams in. Um, it was just natural that his area that he, where he was going to operate with was, was Germany and Europe. <clears throat> He's picked up a couple of other uh, European languages, Italian. He speaks decent French. Um, and that's just where I choose to set the books. Um, so yes, I've gone, he's, he's operated in Cairo, he's operated in Morocco, he's gone to the, the Persian Gulf, but I like to, I like European settings for, for my novels. Well, I mean, I, I, think, I think one of the things that I'm always fascinated by about the origination of Judaism and, you know, taking it right back to the foundation stone to where we are today, the seminal ideas are really about liberty. And if you, you can tie most of John Locke and J.S. Mill and Jefferson, frankly, back to the Torah, most Americans probably don't realize that, but that is the case. And one of the biggest things for me is the protection of minorities and the protection of not being ruled by the mob, but always having some minority protections in a situation. And so for so many years, the, the Jewish community has represented that as a, a beacon of liberty. And here is your protagonist. He is a defender of that idea. Without question. And, I mean, and, if, he, and, if, he were, if he were an American kid, in the 1960s, if he if he's that age, he would have definitely been in the South, uh, fighting for for voting rights and civil rights in the South. That's who he is. Yeah, um, no, he's he's the quintessential man right. of liberty and the quintessential man to protect individual rights and personal freedom. And so, this is my question for you. You know, it's not on the list, but I'm just very curious. We once had lunch together, and you said, you know, the Israel, the country, is in a pretty good position. It's, it's a very strong country now in terms of being able to take care of itself in that region of the world. Given everything that we just talked about and the rise of anti-Semitism, do you still believe that? Is it still on an upward trajectory, the state of Israel? Without question. I mean, I mean, you're, you're a, a businessman, you know, the region and, and the, and the economy. Well, I, I the knew the answer. I just, I was leading you, you know, I, I knew um, the answer, but I wanted um, you to state it. Look at in terms of, of what they're doing with their technology, um, how they modernize their economy um, so quickly. I mean, it, relatively speaking, they went from this sort of socialist economy um, early in the state to this thriving uh, high-tech economy. Um, they got their water problem fixed. Um, they've got energy, um, and they've got, you know, one, one major problem. They've got a huge, uh, problem with the Palestinians. Um, and I, I just wish that we could come up with a formula to fix that, um, in a way that, that, that can just have these two remarkable peoples living and working side by side because it would just be it would be the coolest country in the world. No, no question. Um, and I, I and see uh, um, if we could find some formula um, to uh, to to bring true peace and, and get these two people who've been living side by side in this place for centuries and centuries and centuries um, and to work together because it, it, it's a 
I don't know how much time you get to spend there, but it's a lot of fun. Yeah, food is great. The weather is great. The beaches are great, um, and and we're just just can't get over that. That, that no, uh, I I, that I try to get there. I try to get there twice a year, uh, and I find <clears throat> it to be one of the countries. Is one of my one of my favorite countries. Uh, before I turn it over to John, because we have a ton of questions in the queue, and I want to get to some of them. Uh, we all know that you're a voracious reader. Mm-hmm. Uh, give us one book that you would suggest on the Holocaust and one book that you would suggest on the history of the Catholic Church. It's on your wall. Why? Um, well, it depends on what kind of, of, of Holocaust um, book you want to read. Um, but the, the Freelanders and um, um, uh, Gilbert's one volume yeah, is Martin a very, Gilbert, very yeah. good. Um, yeah. Martin Gilbert's one yeah. volume. Um, he he arranges it nicely so that the that you have a, a time, the year of what what's happening, and you can just sort of see the um, the, the evolution of, of the Holocaust very clearly in that in that one one book. Yeah. Um, and then there there are numerous um um you know it depends on how deep you want to get but in terms of specific things like i read you know down to the various death camps and and the, the personnel and the, how it all happened i mean i i am deeply immersed in this stuff um and and you can spend many years reading about it, studying it, if you, if you choose to, but I, I love Martin Gilbert's. Uh, yeah. Oh, and I'm sorry. The second question was, was on the Catholic church, the history of the Catholic church. Oh boy. You, you, you reference know, uh, Jim, James Carroll's book, Constantine Swore. That is not here. a history of the Catholic church yeah. per se. Um, I think that um, the subtitle of that is the roots of, of antisemitism in the new Testament. Right. Um, it, I believe that's the subtitle. So yeah, that's very cool. specific. Um, and but you will actually, when you read Carol from beginning to end, you will go on a journey. Um, you'll start with the way he arranged, arranges that you'll start with with um, John Paul and his important work that he did on this issue, incredibly important work. And you'll just go along for, for the ride. You'll go back to to why why the Gospels were written the way they were. The Church Fathers, Augustine, the Middle Ages. Um, he he will take you on a on a on a, on a sweeping journey. Um, it's it, I cannot recommend it highly enough. All right. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna turn it over to John uh, for questions from our audience. They're all uh, waiting here to ask you those questions, Daniel. It's a phenomenal book. I'll hold it up one more time for everybody so everybody can see that. And uh, I'm on chapter 56, and so I have to confess. I couldn't quite finish it this morning because I got sidetracked by Skybridge-oriented business. What can I say, Dan? I'm but I'll sorry have it about done, that. I'll, I'll have it done by this afternoon. But go ahead, John. Can yeah, going back to the topic of, of you know, the fact that you're a very voracious reader, what type of books did you read growing up and how did it impact your writing? I know you've mentioned F. Scott Fitzgerald, George Orwell, and John Steinbeck of some of your, uh, as some of your early inspirations. Um, yeah, they were, and I read them at an early age. Um, I was lucky enough to sort of read at a high level as a as a young kid. Um, but my mom was also is also a voracious reader, and I used to get into her stuff, um, including books like Sidney Sheldon and Harold Robbins and and commercial fiction. And I I still have that um, 
sensibility, I think. And, and, and my, my writing is a blend of, of literary and very, very commercial. Um, and um, along with Steinbeck and, and Fitzgerald um, and Orwell uh, and Graham Greene, I count Sidney Sheldon proudly as one of my most important influences. So we have a question. It goes back to one of Anthony's earlier questions about the level of research you do. And sometimes in your books, you almost seem to not just talk about things in real time that are taking place in the Middle East or elsewhere, but even predict events that happen. Yeah. How are you able to do that? And are there any specific books that you wrote that you especially enjoyed uh, preparing for and researching for? Um, well, I mentioned Moscow Rules earlier. Um, I, I love doing the research for Moscow Rules. I, I, I studied Russian history and Soviet history um, as, a, as a, in college, and it was my first foray into into using Russia as a villain. It was before the Russians were quite villains. I was kind of ahead of the, of the curve on that one. Um, you know, a book I did a few years ago called The Black Widow um, truly um, forecast and predicted um, that, that that ISIS was going to be a, a problem in, in Europe, that, that these guys coming out of of, of, your, of, of Syria and settling back in Europe, that it was only a matter of time, I felt, before Europe became, um, came under attack from ISIS. Um, I wrote, I started the Black Widow before uh, the, the attacks of, of, of November 2015. Um, as I say in the, in, the, in the forward of the book, I, I almost set it aside um, because it was just, what I had written um, was so close to the way those attacks unfolded, including the fact that I had used Molenbeek in, in, in Belgium as a setting and, and a place where the attacks were planned from. It was so eerily close that I, I just almost set it aside. I didn't want people to think that, that I had watched the attacks and then, and then wrote a book about them. So then I um, explained what happened in, in the forward and finished the book as, as planned. We have a question, and obviously we don't want to give want you to give away any future storylines of future uh, books. But someone asked how the current discussions in Israel about annexation of the West Bank might inform your storytelling and characterization, potentially in the next Alon book, uh, especially given the disparate emotions and opinions on the Barack team of agents that Gabrielle works with. Yeah, who asked that question? It was Susan, and I, I'll protect her identity, but obviously okay, that's a, fan a of really yours. great question. Um, look, I um, I I did something in in the New Girl um, where where Gabriel and KBM, as I called him, my my Saudi crown prince, are actually driving through the West Bank, um, <clears throat> and KBM is annoyed at all the settlements that he's seen. And, and I had Gabriel say aloud for the first time that, that the two-state solution was dead. We have to come up with a new formula. Um, and I believe that that is a statement of, of fact, um, that it is dead. Um, and I, I will say that um, annexation for me is going to be, it's going to be, um, uh, interesting to write about because I I I I do not support um, uh, annexation and I'm not sure Gabriel does. I mean, he, his mentor. I, I, you know, we used to 
you know, wonder what they really thought, you know, was Gabriel a, a one-stater or a two-stater? He's a, he was a two-stater, at least for a while. Um, he recognizes now that two states are, are, are not possible. But annexation is going to be, it's going to be uh, difficult for me to deal with. The next question, you know, the order sort of feels in many ways like a, a book of celebration of core Christian teachings. What are some of the lessons that you want the reader to take away from the order? Some of the lessons? Um, yeah. Well, I, I think that the, um, the first lesson would be to um, understand the, the roots of anti-Semitism um, and to um, uh, to stress how important it is that, that, um, that we deal with this issue honestly and forthrightly um, because I am concerned about, about the rise of anti-Semitism. Um, the, I'm sorry, the second part of the question was? Yeah, just, just in general, the book seems very thematic about Christian teachings and just lessons to draw. And, and you answered that pretty well and we can move on. Or you no, can... no, but, but in terms of, of look, it's, it is, um, in the end, it's, it's a story of a, of a remarkable friendship between a, a, a Jewish man of, of, of faith and a Christian man of faith. And, and that these two guys can work together um, to try to repair the damage of the past. So it's up in the end of this book, it is it's definitely a novel of, of hope. We have a lot of questions about what's next. I think a lot of your fans have probably poured through the order and, and are wondering to themselves what happens next in this story and, and what happens to some of your other characters. Have you thought about uh, in terms of whether you're going to write another Gabrielle Alon book, you're going to go back to Michael Osborne, uh, what's the future of Ari Shamron uh, and other things like that? What is next in your mind uh, after this book? Well, one of the things I do in order to sort of <clears throat> heal from the process of finishing a book is I start in the next book right away. Um, and so this is the manuscript for the, for the next novel, the 60 or 70 pages that I've got. Um, it is a Gabriel Alon novel. Um, it deals with Russia. Um, and it will contain all of the characters that, we, that we've come to, to know and love and, and a couple of new ones. We have a couple questions about Ari Shamron, whether he's being phased out of the books or whether we're going to see him again and again. Don't want you to give away anything uh, in your storylines. Um, Ari is is aging, obviously, um, and he, I, I simply cannot even wrap my head around the idea of his death. Um, and and so he will continue to occupy the place that he, he has uh, previously as, as Gabriel's father-like figure, his advisor, his mentor. Um, at this, because of the, the, the structure of this novel, I, I actually doesn't appear in this one. So it might be the first one he's never appeared in, um, but I have no plans to, to usher him off the stage anytime soon. Another question about your future writings. Would you ever consider writing a nonfiction historical analysis based on all the research you've done of these geopolitical and religious issues? Or do you think you'll continue to write in the context of nonfiction uh, or uh, fiction thrillers? Yeah, I will always write novels. Um, and I think at, at a certain point, I'll, I'll probably write a, a non-Gabriel book. Um, I'm in the enviable position that 20 
uh, books into the series that they still on the way up. Um, I, I sell more with each publication. Um, so it, I guess it would be, you know, publishing malpractice for me to suspend the, the series anytime soon. Uh, but at some point, I really do want to um, write some standalone novels, and I'll, I'll get to them eventually. Well, Sandra adores Christopher Keller and wonders if there's any chance that you, he might appear in a standalone book in the future. Yes. Yeah. I, I actually have several um, sort of, you know, one sentence outlines, two sentence outlines for Christopher Brooks. Um, I think he's getting fuller and fuller with each outing. I think he's, he's, he's been ready for his own book for some time, uh, but he's really ready for one now. And this is a question relevant to us. We recently had our SALT conference in Abu Dhabi, and we've, we've become close with uh, several prominent Emirati families and mm -hmm. officials there about the rise of the UAE and its warming and its relationship with Israel and, and its general disposition to try to foster collaboration in the region. Do you think Gabrielle might spend some time in Dubai or Abu Dhabi in the future? Uh, definitely. He, I, I mean, it's not something that I, I actually write about, but he does spend time in, in Dubai and, 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 and um, Abu Dhabi and Saudi. I mean, it's just the most interesting development and uh, important developments in the last five years, this um, growing closeness between Israel and particularly um, uh, the Gulf states. And that's one of the things that, that annexation is gonna to, um, throw a spanner in the works. I mean, hope, hopefully it, it won't collapse that new cooperation. But it, I think that if I were the, the Director General of Mossad, and I've got great relations um, with the Gulf states that I've, I've, I've built up, uh, good relations with the Saudis, I, I, would, I would worry about what, what annexation is gonna mean for those. And then they've delivered blunt warnings about it, that, that um, there's, there's going to be blowback if and when the Israelis do move forward with annexation. So we'll ask you one more question. First, I have a comment from Anna. She says, it's not a question, but thank you. My heart isn't ready for Ari to die. Mm -hmm. uh, so thank you, you for that. Last question, and we have several about this that I'll combine into one, but is a, is a movie series about Gabrielle Alon forthcoming? Uh, is there any update on those plans that you can provide? Yeah, I sold um, the book about th three years ago uh, to MGM Television with the plan to turn it into a television series. Um, my timing was not so great and that the little con uh, scandal known as Me Too blew up in Hollywood and, and the rights reverted back to me. Uh, my wife is my business manager and handles all the, the negotiations on, on this front and I think that she probably handles, gets two or three calls a week um, at a time like this about potential um, entertainment packages. I had a, one of the best meetings I've ever had last week with a, a group that wants to make it into a television uh, series and just did the most beautiful outline of how they would do, you know, seasons one through five. So I, I guess I'm, I'm I'm cautiously pessimistic that, that we can get this done. And I'm, I'm the problem. I'm very picky. Um, he's a special character. Uh, my readers have a, a, a relationship with him and, and I am obligated to make sure that, um, that the character that, that ends up on the, 
you know, the big screen or the small screen is is li like the one that, that I write about. Um, and I think I've, I've been able to maintain a lot of control in these in these attempts that I've, I've tried to make it into a series, and that will that will remain true. But but I I am hopeful that that we can get this done. Well, if Jamie's managing the process, then we're confident it'll get done right. <laughs> Just like your background. So, you know, don't try to take credit for your beautiful room raider. It's definitely ten, Jamie's ten, work. 10 out of 10. Yeah, absolutely. What did, what did Anthony get on this last one? I'm sorry. I, I, got, I think I it got was one, one out of 10, over, Danny. No, I got one over a Scaramucci, which is one out of 11. Okay. It was very disappointing, by the way. I'm sorry which, about that. Which is why I have an HD television screen behind me right now. But I, you know, look, I have a lot. There's a lot of progress happening in my life, Daniel. We'll have to see, see I got happens, but... depth and and flow, um, but I don't have that. You have a television set, yeah, and you look you look so beautifully lit. And yeah, see that that's a good that's a good term, dermatologist. Trust yeah. me. But 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 Daniel, thank you so much for your time. Uh, one of the things I want to say to the young people out there: here is a man that lived his dream. He had a great idea. He idealized his life. And then he did not want the mystery of whether or not he could do something. He actually went out and did it. And he's on 20 books and he's a legend today. And so for the young people out there, you got to start one foot ahead of the other and try and live your dreams. And so with that, Mr. Silva, thank you again for an unbelievable read. And I look forward to seeing you soon. Thank you, Mr. Scaramucci.